Well, good morning. Um, I was able to be out here in August, and I've been looking forward to coming back. So thank you, Travis, for having a child and allowing me the opportunity to do so. I know. I know. That's <laughs> nailed it. Um, so just if, if you don't remember me, which is understandable because that was a while back, my name is Holly Tubbs, and it's my privilege to pastor the children and families at Bethany Green Lake. And, um, and as part of that, I, I do a lot more um, of what Ken does on Sundays, so it's a nice treat to be able to uh, teach something to brains that have been fully developed. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for having me. Um, I'm going to pray for us very briefly, um, praying for myself <laughs> as well, and, uh, and we'll begin. God, thank you so much for every person here. We thank you for every story that's represented. We pray for this space. Um, it is a time of respite from the craziness of life. And we know that you're just as present out there as you are right here. But help us hear you now. Help us hear you better. Show us your light. And give us peace and energy and a sense of purpose as we hear these words. We lift this up to you. In your name we pray, amen. So I uh, was a child of the 90s. I was born in the 80s, child of the 90s, and was raised in the South uh, in Georgia. I've tried to get rid of my accent because peer pressure, but um, <laughs> under times of duress, it will come out. And because I was raised in the South, that, that meant I was raised in the Bible Belt. So when I was in third grade, my mom did what a lot of moms then did, where she signed me and my younger brother up for kids' choir at our church. And I was a little ambivalent, um, but I liked music and attention, so uh, I was game. And, uh, and so she, <laughs> she signs us up, and we rehearse, and then we roll up to our first gig. And it's at this um, <laughs> small community stage space in this strip mall, which was big time. And True to, the, true to the era, we roll up in our, in our uniform. Hey there. Oh, this comes all the way off. Do a little engineering here. Yep. <laughs> I planned that. So we roll up to the strip mall in our uniform, which was like black jeans and this big oversized white t-shirt tucked in, of course, and on the shirt, there were these big neon letters that said, Kids Praise Jam, and kids was spelled with a Z. <laughs> I was like, okay, here we go. And, uh, and we're doing our, our dress rehearsal, which is backstage, and by backstage, I mean on the sidewalk outside of the strip mall, and my choir director, who was this, oh, bless her, this hairy-looking woman who was always just like, Okay, now do this and do that, and like just, just I mean, really vicariously living through us. Um, begins handing us these pieces of shredded newspaper, these like clumps of it. Like, and she was like, just take two handfuls because it's really gonna make your movements pop. And um, did I mention this was interpretive movement as well, singing? Yeah, it was the whole deal. And so I, with misgivings, I'm like, okay, here we go. And, um, and then we file out onto the stage, and our parents clap, because that's, that's what you parents do. <laughs> You're so kind to these little third graders. 
with newspaper clumps in their hands. And I'm standing there, and the synth chords of Ray Boltz's Thank You sound, I don't know if you guys, can you show, show of hands, who here has heard of Ray Boltz? Yes, okay. These are my people. Okay. You know that thank you for giving to the Lord. That was like our jam. So we're there, newspaper in hand, and the spotlight comes on. And I have this sitcom deer in the headlights moment where my third grade brain is flooded with awareness. And three things occur to me. The first thing was newspaper shredded up has never made anything pop. <laughs> it is it is garbage. <laughs> we were holding garbage. <laughs> the second thing is that it, just because you spell a word with a Z instead of an S does not make it cooler. Kids, praise jam. And the third thing was I looked really ridiculous. <laughs> and it really informed my performance. I think it suffered because of this awareness. <laughs> just like, thank you for giving to the Lord. That was the last performance I ever did with Kids Praise Jam because of that moment of clarity that I experienced on stage in the brightness of that spotlight. And I was really excited to share that story because um, light is a very common metaphor for obvious reasons. It brings vision and warmth, brings clarity. In that moment, it certainly did. I, I, I'm proud to say that I have never interpretively danced slash sung on stage since that day. It was a real watermark moment for me. It's a bringer of all of these things, and as a natural agent, light is really powerful. But today we're going to talk about light not just as a natural agent, but as a person. Light as a person in the form of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that the light of the world is not just this decorative, idle, nice, beautiful thing that, you know, illuminates and lets us see and be nice to each other. The light of the world as a person is healing and challenging and uncomfortable, but ultimately is transformative. Jesus is the light of the world, and today we'll see the three things that light, as Jesus does. The first thing is that light exposes reality. Um, Thank you, Phil, for reading the text. Uh, as we come into John 8, it's such an interesting, John 7, 8, and 9 are these really interesting chapters because it's right in the middle of, whole, of what some people celebrate as Holy Week, where it's, it's after Palm Sunday, and Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and he's just, these are like the last few days of his life, and he's really going out with a bang. Like, he's not going quietly. Um, and so he's there in the temple. We come into chapter 8 where he's there in the temple. Now, as we enter Jerusalem in this text, we're coming into a time of really crescendoing tension. The temple, which is normally pretty busy, and it's not just any temple, by the way. It's like the temple in Jerusalem. It's this huge, imposing structure um, overlooking the city. It's normally busy because this is the hub of Jewish life. But on this day, when we come into John 8, it is real crowded because they're right in the middle of a celebration called Sukkot, which, depending on your translation um, of your scripture, is also called Festival of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles or, or one of those things. And Sukkot is this uh, seven-day-long celebration where the Jewish people have this really elaborate festival to remember their wanderings in the time of Moses, way, way, way back when. And it's one of the feasts that was given to the Jewish people um, back in, in the books of the law. 
But in the time between that festival being given to them and now in John 8, the festival has just grown. It's like elaborate and there's all these different ceremonies. And there might have been some of it for ceremony's sake, right? Like we all kind of have been, especially if you work at a corporation. I used to work at Aflac, and I remember um, a while back, Aflac uh, uh, revealed their new logo, and I was new to the company, and I was like sitting, and they like were like, all employees, come down to the Civic Center, and we're going to spend all day there, and I remember it was eight in the morning, and we're just standing there, and there's like this techno music, <laughs> and like a beach ball going everywhere, and I was like, is Usher here? Like, what are we doing here? Um, and they were like, it's our new logo, and you could tell everyone who was real invested in the company, because they were just like, ah! <laughs> and then the people who were kind of outside of it were like, what is this? <laughs> There's a little bit of ceremony for ceremony's sake, right? That's, that might be the vibe we get here because there's two parts of this ceremony in Sukkot every day. The first part we're not really going to talk about, but I think is important. It's in John 7, and it's called the water ceremony. And every morning they come out, the priests come out of the temple, they go down to um, this, this little body of water, they bring water back up, they pour it on the altar, and it's like this big show of like, God provided water for us in the wilderness, and this is how we're remembering it. And, and it's in, that's in John 7, and it's after that that Jesus is like, hey guys, I'm the living water. And so that's kind of a big statement. So uh, the second ceremony, sure enough, here in John 8, that um, contextually we can imagine Jesus responding to is called the illumination ceremony and it's every evening of Sukkot the priests and musicians and all of these people they come out of the inner court of the temple and they have these lamps and they go out to the outer courts of the temple and they light these four giant lamp posts and it's this huge deal and they're singing like the psalms of ascent they're 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 going all out and this the water was a reminder of God's provision. This is the reminder of God's presence. They're lighting these lamps and they're remembering that time that God led them as an untouchable pillar of flame. And in the middle of this huge lighting ceremony, this festival with these two big elaborate rituals, Jesus is in the middle of all of that, in the middle of all that pomp and circumstance, stands this living, breathing proof of God's faithfulness. So this is a little awkward already because they're remembering God and remembering all the things God did. They're anticipating Messiah. They're kind of beating their chests and, and, sh and, and kind of putting this mark in the ground like, yes, someday Messiah will come. And we're until then, we're remembering God's faithfulness and presence and provision. And Jesus is right there. They're so preoccupied with their own God-honoring rituals that they dismiss or overlook God right in front of them because Jesus doesn't fit into the way they understand the divine. That's a little awkward. But it's also awkward because Jesus makes it awkward. Uh, in John 8, 12, which is what we opened with, it says, Jesus spoke to the people saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Now, I used to read this verse as like, oh, that's nice. But when I understand the context behind it, I'm just like, oh, that is, that is a party foul. <laughs> Here are these lamps, and you're, and you're lighting them. But guess what? That's a pale imitation. I am the light of the world. That is a very 
inflammatory statement. It's like those commercials where the name brand comes and shows up the generic as an inferior product. So in the middle of these priests marching and singing and pouring water and lighting lamps, Jesus describes him as a better, longer-lasting fulfillment of ritual. So yeah, it's awkward. But this checks out with the Jesus of the Gospels because all through these stories and accounts of his life, he is a one-man wrecking ball of comfort zones. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus had a very limited amount of time in his ministry. He had three years. And who does he spend it with? He spends it with a bunch of criminals and fishermen and tax collectors and sex workers and disabled people and disenfranchised people. That's who he hangs out with. And not only does he befriend the unclean, he makes enemies of the cleanest, law-abidingest people in Jewish society. He calls them whitewashed tombs and dogs and broods of vipers. Hebrew culture is full of lines you do not cross, and Jesus crosses all of them on purpose. He's not just like unaware, like, oh, is I not supposed to call you guys a brood of viper? Like, no, he meant to do it. And today we run the risk of sterilizing and oversimplifying these accounts of Jesus' life because, you know, if you, if you grew up in church or if you've attended church for any amount of time, you've probably heard them. And besides, we all know that the secret to taking the air out of any good story is to know, like, oh, it ends well, right? And so it can be easy for us to be like, well, Jesus wins. So you kind of read it and don't quite relive how really tense that would have been. And so today, I want us to try to forget the happy ending of Jesus wins when we talk about this story. And I want us to put ourselves into the narrative because when I read accounts of Jesus, I think I just assume that I'd be one of the people like, um, you know, Mary Magdalene, who's like, anytime Jesus needs something, she's like, yeah, what can I get for you? Okay, I'm I'm listening, I'm following you, I'm in, I want to believe I'd be one of those people, you know, or like one of the disciples where they're just like ride or die, like I really want to be one of those people. But in my own way, if I'm honest, when I put myself into the narrative, I identify with the priests. I identify with the Pharisees, not in lighting giant lamps or, you know, marching to the nearest body of water, um, but in thinking that the point of life is to keep a version of the law. I find myself settling for a gospel that most aligns with my own biases. God requires personal responsibility, so I vote Republican. God requires empathy, so I vote Democrat. God requires idealism, so I vote Green or Libertarian. I used to judge people who didn't keep the law. I grew up in the Bible Belt. That's kind of, unfortunately, a cultural thing of my home church. And I grew out of that. And I was like, oh, thank goodness, I don't do that anymore. And then I just realized, oh, well, now I'm just judging people who are trying to keep the law. There's always the other. And this human propensity to divide ourselves this way is the brokenness in all of us. Uh, We in the church are often guilty of instituting something called the great Christian sorting system. I draw a line between those who agree with me and those who are wrong. (laughs) The good and the evil, the winners and the losers, the blessed and the 'er ne'er-do-wells. I keep my religious traditions and the things that reaffirm the way I see and experience God, and I just put on blinders 
to everything else, to anyone who would disrupt or challenge that. But here is the problem. Anytime we draw a line between ourselves and others, Jesus is always on the other side of it. This is a bad feeling. It is convicting. And when I say that the light exposes reality, I mean that the way Jesus lives his life exposes the darkness in which I often live mine. The darkness of our egos. The darkness of our, of our goodness, of looking great, of looking godly. Jesus exposes religious people for being so busy with the work of God that we miss God standing right in front of us and in doing so spectacularly miss the point. The light of the world exposes that and that is really scary. But here's the good news. The second point, which is light overcomes darkness. Jesus, the light of the world, doesn't just expose us in our darkness because exposure without healing is humiliation. Jesus exposes the darkness, and he chases it away. There is this wonderful verse in the book of John that I love, 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 love. John 1, 5. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. One of the things I love about this verse is how definitive those verb tenses are. A light shines. The darkness did not overcome it. There is victory to be found in that grammatical nuance. The light is still shining, and the victory has already been won. However, this verse also introduces some cognitive dissonance. Because as followers of Christ, we are still profoundly broken. How do people of light, where the light shines and the darkness did not overcome it, how do we live then with the darkness in ourselves? You know, for many of us, this question defines how we engage with our faith. We recognized our own sin and brokenness in some way, so we chose to follow Jesus. And yet, just like some weird wash cycle, we find ourselves spending our time being condemned by this bogus reward and punishment system of religion. And that's how we grapple with the darkness in us. We just try to go, okay, well, if I do this, then I'll feel better, then God will like me more. And if I don't do this, then that'll, okay, then I'll be, and then all you're doing is modifying behavior to match what you think God wants from you. And that is exhausting. If you hear nothing else today, I hope you hear this. You are simultaneously broken and blessed. There is nothing that you can do to shift the 100% sinner and 100% saint duality of who you are. And you don't have to. Yes, there are wise ways to live. And there are natural consequences to things. But if you think that God is zapping you because you are doing what he doesn't want you to do, then you have been lied to. You are a mixed bag of beauty and chaos. You were created in God's image, and yes, you bear the wound of human brokenness. And following Jesus does not make us less susceptible to our own chaos and failure, but it puts that chaos and failure in its proper context. There is a light that shines, and the darkness did not overcome it. God has seen it all, everything you have done, everything you're going to do, everything you could do, and he has seen no deal breakers. He has still decided to create you on purpose 
for a purpose. God knows we're capable of both beauty and destruction and has pursued you anyway. God has surrendered his right to condemn you and has given us all we need to live the life that we're called to. All the grace and forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation of God is already ours. So why doesn't it feel that way? Why do we just spend our time just beating ourselves up? And I think the answer is shame. We see this um, voice of the accuser enter the narrative in Genesis where the, where the snake goes, well, did God really say that? Can God be trusted? And that is the voice we hear to this day. Now, let me be clear. It's healthy and normal to feel guilt, right? Guilt is like physical pain um, in, in a healthy context. It's like, oh, um, my wrist hurts. Something's wrong. I need to look at it, right? Like guilt. Oh, I feel bad about that. I should, I should look at it. But guilt is not an identity statement. It is a flag. Shame is an identity statement. Shame is a robber and an isolator. Shame is the accusing voice inside your head that allows you to kick the ever-loving gobstop and tar out of yourself when you mess up. Shame is the darkness that whispers, but if they really knew you, they wouldn't think that whenever you get a compliment. Shame is the weight that settles on your shoulders as you sit in church right now and remember that thing you shouldn't have done, that food you shouldn't have eaten, that porn you shouldn't have watched, those words you shouldn't have said, that money you shouldn't have spent. Shame tells us that we are alone in our pain and brokenness, that we are uniquely worthless. Shame tells us that God is lying when he calls us forgiven. And this is a paralytic. It will freeze you in the darkness. It will isolate you. It will keep you from the light of God and the freedom that comes with it. It will, it will keep you from the forgiveness and feeling that sense of acceptance from your creator. It keeps you from the relationships that you were meant to have with your creator and your community. And it convinces you that Jesus would have taken one look at you and seen everything there was to see and then walk away. That's what shame does. And we are called to step outside the shadow of this, not by imagining shame away, but by trusting that when God calls us forgiven, he means it. And that the work of justification and defining what our sins are, that's not our role, it never has been. When we cling to the truth, when we cling to the light of the world, the darkness in our hearts falls away just a little bit more. And we see this expressed in Ephesians 5, 13, as Paul reclaims the words of Isaiah, he says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you and on you. I love the sleeper, awake. There's a lot of personal agency there, right? Wake up. With his life, Jesus shows us humanity as it's meant to be and promises us a way to follow in his footsteps, not perfectly, but faithfully. What we're left with is the ability to lean into life the way God did. So let God lift the burden of shame from your shoulders. This is really good news because there's more at stake than our own personal brokenness. We live in a world where, I mean, every time I get a New York Times notification... <laughs> I just am like, the world is on fire. It is scary out there, no matter what your political beliefs are. We are living in a world of war and crime and corruption and sickness and poverty and greed. 
and people who double park? How has the light of the world conquered the darkness when we're still living in it? Here's how. One of the great acts of destruction in our history and our country's narrative was September 11th, 2001. This small group of men snuffed out the lives of about 3,000 people and injured 6,000 more, ripped apart countless families, did innumerable amount, an innumerable amount of damage and property destruction and the safety of the American psyche. Their actions were like this giant gash across our cultural narrative. And the echoes of those attacks are still felt today, right? But as devastating as those attacks were, the attacks are not the whole story. Just a few weeks after September 11th, there was this amazing New York Times op-ed written by a man named Stephen Gould called A Time of Gifts. And in this op-ed, he introduces the idea of something he calls the great asymmetry. It's the idea that every incident of evil is balanced by, by 10,000 unnoticed acts of kindness, too often unnoted and invisible as the ordinary efforts of a vast majority. He writes this. I have stood at ground zero, stunned by the twisted ruins of the largest human structure ever destroyed in a catastrophic moment. But in human terms, ground zero is now the focal point for a vast web of bustling goodness, channeling uncountable deeds of kindness from an entire planet. The rubble of ground zero stands, stands mute. And I love that line. The rubble of ground zero stands mute while a beehive of human activity churns within and radiates outward as everyone makes a selfless contribution, big or tiny, according to means and skills, but each of equal worth. He writes about this, this incident he had where he was, he was helping people bring um, a lot of different supplies and everything to the first responders who were at ground zero clearing away the rubble. And he says, you know, they have like truckloads of supplies and everything going there. And this one guy says, wait, I want to send some apple brown Bettys from this bakery that's like famous for them. I want to send them to the workers. I only have 12 of them. And the author, understandably, is like, 12 apple brown Bettys and, a tr and truckloads of supplies. Okay takes the apple brown Bettys down to ground zero and hands one to a fireman who pauses and eats it and closes his eyes and says, you don't know how much this meant. Twelve apple brown Bettys into the abyss. A light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And as Jesus is the light of the world, the way that this darkness disperses and continues to disperse is through you and I. As, it, as he says in Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill can't be hidden. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under a bushel basket. He puts it on the lampstand. It gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This darkness in us and around us is very real. It can't be imagined. But the transforming work of faith is to choose to be people of light, even when the night feels overwhelming. To trust that when God says these things, 
when Jesus says that you are the light of the world, to trust that that applies to you, even in your brokenness. And then to join the ranks of the people following God, to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. Because darkness won't last. It is already lost. And you are invited to be co-laborers with our creator in chasing it out. Which brings us to our third point and our final point. And that is that light gives us a choice. When I was in college, one of my favorite things to do was to go spelunking or caving. And there's a lot of some really cool, beautiful cave systems in Georgia and Alabama and that general region. My first time caving ever was this place called Petty John's uh, Cave in Walker County, Georgia. And we went down there, and it's this, I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing. We spent all day below ground exploring. The only light was from our headlamps, and we, use, we like to freak ourselves out. So we use them pretty sparingly. Um, and the dark, because it's so easy to get freaked out, the darkness in those caves is like its own separate entity. Um, it's, you know, of course you hear the thing where you like, you can't see your hand in front of your face. That was true. But I was like, it, <laughs> I just remember thinking like, if I could just stare hard enough, my eyes would adjust. And I realized that um, when I turned my light on, I thought my hand was out here and it was right here. <laughs> which I think is something else wrong with my <laughs> hand-eye coordination, not to blame on the cave. But the darkness was so pervasive. And, uh, you know, we headed back up in the late afternoon, and, and it was one of the caves where, you know, the, you, uh, you go down into it, you don't go through it. So we had to come out vertically through this hole in the ground. And as I climbed out of the cave, the sunlight was so bright that I, I just instinctively ducked back down. Um, it was this weird first instinct to just prove my, uh, to protect my, my eyes from this thing that, that hurts it, the light. And I thought of that as I was preparing this, because when we come to a place in our faith where the light of the world exposes something in us, our first reaction is to shrink away. It feels easier and more familiar to stay in the dark if it's what we're used to to cling to old addictions and systems and habits and relationships, things that don't help us move into the light. But if we give in to that first reaction of shrinking away, we're going to miss out on the way we were created to be. There's nothing wrong with shrinking away. The light is scary. But that can't be the end of the story. We were created to be reflections of the light of Jesus, partakers of living water, blessed and broken friends of the creator. God doesn't force this on us. We are always given a choice. And unfortunately, to be honest, some of us have chosen to stay at the doorway of that cave. As we close today, I want you to hear this. Whether you come out or not, whether you step into that light or not, whether you give in to that paralyzing fear that when you step into the light, you will be exposed and there won't be any healing to follow it, that you'll be seen and found wanting in a way that love, the love of God is, is taken from you, you can live your life like that, and I don't believe you will be condemned for it. But what a waste. 
You weren't made for it. You weren't made to live in fear. You weren't made to live in darkness. Know this, God knows you and loves you, loves you too much to let your brokenness be the final word in this story. The light of the world has exposed the darkness and has invited us into helping God chase it away. That is the point. And that is the point that we miss when we cling to comfortable gospels and Christian sorting systems. So let's put away our ceremony, the water and the light that make up our own personal piety. Let's recognize them for what they are. They are pale imitations of living water and brighter light, of closer intimacy and conquering love. Let's put aside our dividing lines and learn from each other and love each other because how, how else is God seen more clearly in our lives than when we do our best to love those who, in another situation, we might not even like. And let's put aside our shame. Let's trade our mourning for celebration as we stand up straight and breathe deeply and step into the light of the one who knows us more thoroughly than anyone else. Let's embrace the transformative discomfort and friendship of Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us, and in doing so, let's lean into the light of the world. Let's pray. God, I, um, I am convicted as I speak these words at the shame that I heap upon myself, at the lines that I place upon others, and at the way that I hide from the honesty of who you are in just trying to maintain my own personal sense of piety and goodness. Um, God, help me surrender those to you. Take them from me. Lead me into the light, because it is scary. It is scary here in the darkness, but we know that we were called to help chase it away. We thank you for loving us first and for loving us best, and we pray that our hearts would respond now with love towards you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>